0: going to look at this morning, looking at working, continuing with our series, working through the book of Daniel. Are you enjoying it? Yes. yes. Oh, that's positive. Um, now, at first glance, you'd think this book was about Daniel and his friends, but actually the, the book is primarily about God, as we will see this morning. And I'm going to deal with this chapter in a slightly different way than usual. It's very long. So rather than read through the whole thing in one go, I thought we'd work our way through it in stages. And uh, I have three points, as usual, plus a conclusion with three very brief parts to it. So my points are the dream, the interpretation, and the fulfillment. Um, I I want you to notice, though, in verse 3, we have this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, declaring the praises of God. And that's how this chapter starts and ends. So here we go. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar announces himself, and he's speaking to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I think this statement pretty much sums up what the whole book of Daniel is about, actually, when you read it. The more I read it, the more I see that. It goes on, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Fat and happy, okay? I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Notice that Daniel's actually included with the magicians and diviners. That's in no way meaning that he was using divination or any other strange power. The revelations that came to Daniel were given him by the Holy Spirit of God. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here we have a pagan king, realizing that Daniel operated by a different power, but in his worldview, there were lots of gods. So it looked to him, looked that Daniel was in favor with all of them. So he says, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. You seem to have favor with all of them. That was his worldview. He didn't understand there was only one God at that point. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me these are the visions i saw while lying in bed i looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land its height was enormous the tree grew large and strong and its top touched its top touched the sky it was visible to the ends of the earth its leaves were beautiful its fruit abundant and on it was food for all under it the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field." Let them be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let them live. Let him, sorry, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals, among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times have passed for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So here we have the dream once again, and Daniel is the man. Okay? I mean, that's called being put on the spot, isn't it? You know, Daniel, nobody else can help me, but I know you can. Anybody ever done that to you? You know, Jonathan, nobody else can help me, but let me tell you this, and you know the answer. Do I? You ever been in that spot? Do I? Oh! Daniel was God's man in the right place at the right time. Do you remember I spoke about that right at the beginning? This book, you see these, these four guys are the God's men in the right place at the right time. We're all children of God to be understand that wherever God puts us, we are His people in the right place at the right time. I'll tell you a little little story. I've probably got time. Um, just before we went on holiday, about a week before we went on holiday, Simon and, when, uh, and I went to Durham to our regional leaders meeting. Uh, and there, Mark DuPont was uh, there for the week and he had a couple of hours with us and he shared some things and then at the end he he prayed for us all and uh, he prayed for me and and apart from saying God was healing me of a few things which I didn't know I had um which was quite nice he he then said God says to you do the work of an evangelist and um I've never had that come to me before and I wrote it down and I thought well that's interesting what do I do about that then we went on holiday and as I say, wherever you go, wherever you are, God, you're God's person. You don't stop being a child of God because you're on holiday. Uh, and my prayer is always, God, use me wherever you send me. And um, we'd been there uh, about four days, and I, I, I found myself thinking over and over. I felt God were reminding me, don't forget, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. And I, I thought, well, so I was praying, God, I, I, don't know. I don't know what that's about. And then one evening we'd been out for a meal, and we, we came back, And we walked back into the entrance of the hotel and the the owner lady was there and and another Australian lady was sitting there. And um, we got introduced to this Australian lady and then we got invited to sit down. And basically, um, she'd been brought up a Roman Catholic and and then married a Muslim guy and hadn't given all of these things much thought for many years, uh, got teenage children and now was suddenly asking big questions about life. And she would sat down with the owner of the hotel and said, you know what, I think Jesus is the only answer. So they tell me this, and I'm going, really? Well, fancy that. So we had two hours then when I'm scrambling around trying to (laughs) to explain the gospel. Now, this lady is a lovely lady and is exploring lots of stuff on the web, and some of the stuff on the web is very strange you can't believe everything you read on the web. Did you know that? There's people on the web who believe the earth is flat. You, you really can't believe that. But, but the Bible says, seek and you will find. And so she's seeking. And I believe God gave us the opportunity at that time to share some truth about the gospel. And uh, I thought, wow, do the work of an evangelist. And then I went and started thinking, I wonder how many of us if we all got put in that situation, if somebody come and said, you know what, I, I think Jesus might be the only answer. Can you tell me the way? How would we answer? Are we ready to answer? And so I've begun to think about the future in terms of helping us all, making sure we understand what a presentation of the gospel, personal, of the, personally, how we could present the gospel to somebody who asks us. Yeah? I think it would be good for us all. It's certainly be good for me because I was scrambling around. And Jean said, you weren't quite flowing into your normal self. And I thought, no, I was a little bit horizontal, really. You know, you're just, just relaxing in the sun. And then suddenly, Jesus is the only answer. Can you tell me more? And, of course, what do you do? Sorry, I'm on holiday. Come back in two weeks. Of course not. You grab every opportunity. And so, you know, I believe God's man in the right place at the right time. And uh, I just believe that with all my heart, and I believe all the contacts we make in Turkey um, are long-term contacts, not short-term ones. So this is Daniel's situation. Come on, Daniel, you're the man. You can tell me the answer to this dream. Can I really? And so, point two, the interpretation, it says then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. Would you be greatly perplexed? I, I, you could easily be perplexed. Perplexed, I mean. It's okay being able to interpret a dream for the king, but what if it's bad news? I've had a dream. Can you tell me what it means? And then you get, you get the understanding of what it means. You think, I can't tell him that. I mean, this is the king. I'm going to tell him some really bad news. God, couldn't you, couldn't you make it a nice dream? Couldn't you make it a dream that promises him something nice? Because we all want to be bringers of good news, don't we? Don't we? I mean, who wants to say, I've got some bad news. You're going to go nuts. Sorry, that's not prophetic. <laughs> I mean, who wants to do that? So Daniel's struggling. But the king comes to his rescue. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. That gives him permission. I want you to interpret it, whatever it means. So Belshazzar, Daniel answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Imagine the king getting sort of puffed up at this point. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, probably an angel, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And then Daniel gets rather bold. He said it now, so he decides to advise the king. And he doesn't hold back. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins. He's talking to the king. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Now, you would have thought that The king might have paid some attention to Daniel's advice. The the king knew that Daniel was able to interpret dreams correctly. In chapter 2, he'd even bowed before Daniel, saying, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries. He thought that he'd pay some attention. He just had some bad news, and here's some advice. Renounce, change, put yourself right, humble yourself. Start treating people properly and God God make let you continue ruling your kingdom. <coughs> not so. King just carries on as before. I mean he's had dreams, visions of angels, he's got clarity in terms of what it all means, and yet he still is not prepared to bow the knee. So we come to the fulfillment. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. He carries on for a year. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, listen to this, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power? For the glory of my majesty. Well, there's some arrogance for you. Don't you think that's arrogant? There's a guy who's as blind as a bat. Visions of angels, all the truth of what the interpretation means, and yet he still says, "I did it. I did it my way. I did it with my power. I did it with my for my glory. And aren't I great?" That's what he's saying. He's, he's as arrogant as ever. You know, arrogance and pride are the downfall of so many people. I need to tell you there's no place for pride in the people of God. There's no place for arrogance in the people of God. While we were worshipping, I had a, I felt God give me a word. It's for someone here, and I don't know who you are. And I'm not making it, I'm not trying to fish you out. But let me just say this. I felt God say there's there's somebody here, at least one person here. And in your heart, you desire to serve God and be effective for his glory. But somehow you keep getting in the way. And I just felt God say, until you change, you will never be effective. I'll leave that with you. There's no place for arrogance or pride in the people of God. You see, there's nothing that we have that we've not been given by him. Even if we were clever and have achieved great things, built businesses, made lots of money, whatever we've done, got a reputation, everything we have, even our cleverness, has been given to us by God. As we saw when we went through the, the book of James a few weeks ago, in James chapter 4, verse 6, he quotes Proverbs 3, verse 34, and it says, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. See, the humble person recognizes that every day is a gift. Where you live is a gift. Any money you have in your bank is a gift. Any food you have on your table as a gift, it's all from God. You may think that you've earned it, you may think you've, you, you're have you worth it, well you're not. You know those adverts, you know those adverts on the telly that make, you know, the, the ones about perfume and all that stuff, and they'll go, go on, you're worth it. What a load of rubbish. <laughs> I mean, I stopped being worth it years ago, But but... That just feeds the wrong thing. We brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing out of it. Everything we have is a gift from God. There's no basis for pride. There's no basis for arrogance. All we have to do is be thankful. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's read on to verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice from heaven came. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Notice, he said, it's all mine. I did it for my glory, he said God. I've just taken it from you because it was never yours in the first place. And you know what? I'll give it to anybody I please because he's God. We aren't told what the seven times were. It's more certainly than seven weeks, probably seven years, because his nails had to grow very long and his hair had to grow very long and he was living with the animals. And he'd gone nuts. He was like a beast eating grass. Goes on immediately... What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from people, he ate grass like an ox, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Huh. There's a lesson there, isn't there? You, you look at the world. You look at the politicians and all the people, all the scientists and all the people who think they're full of their good ideas. We have the answer. People need to lift their eyes to heaven because nobody has the answer except God. We think our cleverness is going to solve it. No, it's not. It's getting, making things worse. You'd think that at last now this guy had learned his lesson. I raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity is restored. But actually, as you'll see next week, I think think Simon's on next week. If you read verses 22 and 23 of the next chapter, you'll find that at best he'd only learned his lesson for a short while. But I'll leave that for next week. We go on, he says, Raise my eyes towards heaven, and then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Now listen carefully. As I said, the whole of Daniel is about God. And here we have this pagan king declaring truth again. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? How amazing is our God? At that time, at the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom sorry, were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And then listen again to what this pagan king has understood. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised and ex- praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. That's our God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Well, I think he's got it. Do you think he's got it? Well, in terms of the understanding of the truth of God he had, but I think he missed the point on personal application. During our conversation with these two ladies on holiday, you get the usual questions of why does God allow? Do you ever get that? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God... And I found myself saying, you know what, God's not on trial. God does not have to justify Himself to humanity, because He's perfect, He's God. We're the ones who have to get in line. You know that, that, that thing, you know, if the, I heard it years ago, you know, if the, if, if, if the fur on the cat gets ruffled, the cat's going to turn round. You know if you stroke a cat the wrong way, the, the, they don't like that, they like to be smooth. Well sometimes, we, we're like that, and we go, God, I'm, I'm offended, and God says, well, turn round then, because I'm not changing you are. Do you get it? You turn around, because I'm not changing. God stroke me the other way. Let me understand. Give me a full understanding of how you work. And he goes, no, you're too puny. You couldn't understand, because you're not perfect. I am. Oh, Do you get it? We put God on trial. We stand up and we try and argue this and argue that. I'm not going to try that anymore. I'm just going to declare the truth. God's not on trial. He doesn't have to justify himself to you or me or anybody else on the planet. He made us for his good purposes. He made us for his glory and honor. And he he can do it as he pleases. And we stand in judgment on him at our peril. In our Western culture, in our Western logical world, we think we're so clever. We can argue this and argue that and persuade people this. We're puny. We know nothing. We know nothing in comparison to his glory, to his honor to his majesty, to his intellect. Wow. He's God. Are you offended by what I'm saying? Anybody offended? Good. Good. I've only got one answer for you. Turn around and believe the word. Turn round. Start by giving him praise because he is God. See, I've heard people say, Well, I couldn't worship a God like that. Really? Well, is God made in our image then? Do we have to say, Well, I'll worship God if He's like this, if He if He does these things? No, no, He's God. He made us. Why should he conform to our image? He made us in his. We're the ones who messed up, not him. God is worthy. Because he's God. For no other reason. You okay with that? Ooh, doesn't sit very well, really, does it? It's kind of... But I have no other statement to make. He's God. Let me get to my conclusion then. In conclusion, I've got three things I want to bring out very quickly. Although I'm sure we could bring out loads and loads. First, I want to read some of these wonderful statements about God coming from this pagan king. Because we would do well to say these things ourselves, even as the people of God. He says this, How great are his signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's how He starts. As He tells us the story of His dream. And then toward the end, He says, after going through everything He went, after being nuts for seven years probably, He says, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Does that mean God doesn't care? No, no. He's saying in comparison to God, we're like, he says the nations are a drop in a bucket. It's not like God's here and we're there. No, no. God is God in all his majesty and splendor and we are not the people to judge him. We're called to worship Him. The response to God is worship, not debate. I've heard people say, you know, when when I get to glory, I'm going to stand before God in judgment, Gay, and say, God, why did you allow that? Have you ever heard people say that? You know what? I guarantee you, on that day, you will not utter a word, but you will be on your face going, what a stupid idiot. Because then you will see, and then you will know. God is not made in our image. We are made in His. And the plan is that we are conformed to that image through Christ. And the plan is that we are worshipers. Not because He does nice things for us or keeps us happy, but because He is God and is always worthy of praise. So that's why the Apostle Paul could sing hymns of praise in prison. Because God's still worthy of praise. Whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance, however bad things are, God is worthy of praise all the time. This is the truth. And if we get this truth, we'll step into a freedom that we've not yet experienced. He does as He pleases. Whatever He wants to do, God will do. He'll do it with the powers of heaven. He will do it with the peoples of the earth. God is in charge of what's going on in the earth today. Do I understand it? No, but I promise you this. He's working out his eternal purposes and they're rushing towards a conclusion when Jesus will come again and there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth and all the sighing and sorrow will go and, and we'll have a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, coming down to the earth and we'll be people of the earth and all the former things will be forgotten. That I do know. Can we do that? Not for a second. Is God doing that? Absolutely. Can we trust him to do that? Can we? That's where my confidence is. My confidence is in God. His greatness. Not even in my understanding. How good he is. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You ever done that, you know, with your children? One of them are here. You know, know, they do something and you go, What have you done? You ever done that? I never said that. No, I wasn't saying I never said that to purity. Have you ever said that to your kids as you've got family? What have you done? Perhaps when you were a child your parents said to you, What have you done? And you usually lie. When you're a child because of original sin, it's very natural. You know what, as a child I grew up, I was such a good liar, nobody ever knew I was lying. That's dreadful, but it's true. We lie. We cover it up. What have you done? I messed up. I blew it. Anybody ever blown it here? Anybody in the room got it wrong? I hope you have. Otherwise you're lying. (laughs) (laughs) But no one can ever say to God, God, look, what have you done? Look, look, you've made a mess of it. You can't say that to God because everything he does is perfect. Do you remember when King David has his affair with Bathsheba, do you remember? He's a naughty king, he should have gone to war but he's on the roof, he looks at Bathsheba bathing and thinks, oh yes, and so he, 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 he takes her into his bed and she becomes pregnant and so he thinks, I've got to get rid of her husband somehow, so he, in the end he arranges him for him to be killed in battle, put in the front, so he dies and he thinks, nobody will know now I can, I can make her another one of my wives because it seems you could have loads then and then then God intervenes, and he goes, oh. and the child gets ill, the baby's born, the child gets ill, and David's on his face before God, and he says, God, against you, against you and you only have I sinned. Yeah, sure, I sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and all that, but actually, you know what? We don't sin against people, we sin against God, because he's the only perfect one. And he's there, and he's saying, "Oh God, please forgive me." This child, pre- and this child, he's praying for this child to live. And after a while, this child dies. And what's King David's response? His first response to the death of this child is to bow and worship, because everything the Lord does is right. Do you get it? The first response, God, whatever you are, always worthy. Of worship. Wow. And you know what? We have to go through some tough things in life to come to understand that. Whatever, I will worship you because you're God. Compare this with what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11 33 to 36. He suddenly bursts out with this. It's written as a doxology in your Bible, but it says this. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. God is amazing. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Both Isaiah and Habakkuk tell us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, we live in a bubble called us, my me bubble. And you know, you have that thing about personal space. Anybody have that thing about personal space? You know, in some cultures, they're they're a bit. You you just get a bit near. Do you ever get like that? (laughs) You know, I, I, you know, do you do you know what I'm talking about? It's like just just you know, we want a conversation, but not that near. Thank you. We like our little bubble, we we live in it, we it's my bubble. And everything in life is about me. My existence my hopes, my dreams, my future, my plans what I want. Really? Everything in life is about him. His purposes. His plans. His glory, his honour, his kingdom. When I learn to bow the knee and say, Lord, not my will but yours be done, I begin to understand the freedom that comes from walking with God. Oh, I'm a free man now. Doesn't matter anymore, I can walk with God now because it's not about me, it's about him. My second conclusion is this. We can have all sorts of revelation about God and his purposes and yet still be totally blind when it comes to facing the truth about ourselves. you be amazed the number of people who come and say, wow, what a great sermon, Paul. Isn't that wonderful truth? That, isn't that great to know about God? Yeah, yeah. Truth is wonderful. But the bit we don't see is the bit that points to us. Nebuchadnezzar never faced the truth about his own arrogance and pride. He kept getting a little bit, but the the root of it was never dealt with. He never said, actually, the problem's me. You see, the problem in my relationship with God and in your relationship with God is not God. So who else do you think it might be? Two people? One perfect, one not. Who's got the problem? Ah, okay. Okay. If anybody needs to change, I do. To face the truth about ourselves is often the hardest thing to do. Because we all think we're better than we are. Do you do that? You watch the telly and you hear all the terrible things. and, Thank you, I'm not as bad as that. Do you ever do that? Anybody ever do that? Well, I'm I'm not like that. Isn't that terrible? Something in the Bible about not judging. I wonder why that is. Because you and I are worse than we think we are. We just deceive ourselves a great deal. I know I have over the years. God give this king Nebuchadnezzar so many chances to face the truth about himself and change, and yet he never did. In my praying, I often ask God, God, please let me see the truth about myself, however much it hurts. And then please give me the grace to change. See, I want to be like Jesus. I genuinely want to be like Jesus. I genuinely love God. I don't care about reputation. I don't care if I'm known. I don't care if I'm known as a great leader. I don't care if I'm known as a great preacher. I don't care. I really don't care. The only well done that matters to me is the well done that comes from God on judgment day. When I stand before God and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's the only thing that matters. See, God kept speaking to the king, getting his attention. This king had the opportunity to be great and really effective in the purposes of God, and yet he would not let go of his pride and arrogance. And yet he said, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And still said, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And he was being humbled and humbled and humbled and humbled, and yet still did not face it. The last three phrases of the prophet Hosea's book say this. I preached on this years ago in the early days in Milton Keynes, I remember. There's this. It's a great preach here, if ever you want a good preach, some. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Three points. The ways of the Lord are right, the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. We are given truth in Scripture about God and ourselves that we may bow the knee in worship and live humbly before God. We are to live in the light of the truth revealed in the Bible. That's why God gave us it. My final conclusion is this, and it's very brief. God is worthy of praise because he's God. God is always right. God never has to justify himself to anyone. Everything he does is right and perfect. And in his perfection, he sent his son, Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, to become a perfect man and die in our place because we couldn't be perfect. We can see his glory from afar. The heavens declare it. But we can only know God personally, personally, Through Jesus, if we will humble ourselves and bow the knee and draw near, we become a child of God. And so it's not our perfection, but it's the very perfection of our perfect God that's attributed to me, so that now, when I'm clothed in Christ, God sees me as perfect as he is. And so I have perfect access to God. Only a perfect God could do that. If God isn't perfect, he couldn't have sent his perfect son to make a perfect way so that I could be seen perfect in his presence. Does that make sense? It's because of his perfection, he so loved the world, that he sent his perfect son to die in our place. So we can become children of God. You can become a child of God today if you will put your trust in Jesus. Jesus is the only way to know God. And I finish with this Colossians 1 15 to 19. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. by making peace through his blood, shed on a cross. We praise God because he's God. We put our trust in Jesus because we're loved. And we do it now and forever. Let's stand, shall we? I'm going to pray. We're going to take up our offering. If you want to be born again this morning, come to the front. I'd love to pray for you. If you want to respond to Amanda's words for healing, come stand over here on her right. Um, Andy, can we come and sing All Hail the Lamb again? Because it's the only way I know to finish.